Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of sex work, drug use, domestic violence, murder, and assault. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Guests circulated through the big house on Riverview Street, drinking champagne and marveling at the newly constructed mansion. In the backyard, beautiful men and women lounge by the pool. Underwater, a massive double letter S glittered in gold. It was March 18, 1974, the evening of Perth, Australia's biggest party of the year, and Shirley Finn was the host. Shirley had only been working in Perth a few years, but she'd quickly made some very powerful friends. As one of only three madams in the city, her brothel catered to every high-level John in town. Many of her clients were here tonight. Bookies and mobsters rubbed shoulders with police officials. Invitees included everyone from local politicians to powerful Australian heads of state. A cheer went up as the door opened and the guest of honor finally arrived. He was a glamorous young man, smiling from behind large tinted glasses. It was Elton John, fresh from a stadium performance downtown. As Shirley stepped forward to greet Elton, she could feel every eye in the room on her. She beamed, soaking in the attention as she introduced Elton to Perth's movers and shakers. The city adored her. But Shirley's power went further than that. She knew all the party-goers' secrets and had dirt on everyone. And that afforded her a strange kind of security. She knew that if anything went south, she could bring all of Perth down with her. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the death of Shirley Finn. This week... We'll cover her rise from middle-class housewife to notorious madam and the tangled web of secrecy that surrounded her murder. Next week, we'll cover Shirley's daughter's fight for answers and the deep levels of corruption that stymied her efforts. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some... The gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. 
Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Shirley Finn was born Shirley Shoering on November 2, 1941. Her father was away serving as a pilot in World War II, so Shirley spent her early years with her mother in the suburbs outside Perth, Australia. When her father returned to Australia, he often clashed with his headstrong daughter. He wanted her to follow his rules. But Shirley was entering her adolescence in the 1950s, the time when rebellious teens were first invented. She smoked, she drank, she put on makeup and ran away from home. The more her parents disapproved, the more Shirley pushed back. Things came to a head in 1955, when 14-year-old Shirley was caught with a 20-year-old man. While in modern times it'd be the older predator who faced punishment, in the 1950s, young women often got the worst of it. After her father found out, Shirley and her family were hauled in front of a magistrate. Your Honor, we've tried everything. We took away her cigarettes and makeup. We spoke to our pastor. We even banned her from leaving the house. And yet she was found out of the house in the company of an adult man. You don't understand. She is very strong-willed. You're her father, sir. It is up to you to keep control, and clearly you have failed in your duty. Shirley, now I speak directly to you. You'll do well to listen to your parents and go to church every Sunday. Uh, she will. We'll make sure of it. No, I'll make sure of it. Shirley Shuring, you will be remanded to the sisters at the home of the Good Shepherd. Maybe sometime working in the laundries will teach you to keep your nose clean. The laundries at Good Shepherd were a work program for troubled girls run by a convent of nuns. On the surface, they were seen as kind of a social service. Orphan girls, or girls who landed in the juvenile courts, would spend their days washing clothes and learn to be productive members of society. In actuality, they were more like prisons. Girls who disobeyed their parents were forced to work without pay and suffered frequent beatings from the nuns. Shirley spent eight months there washing away her sins in the scalding hot water. Soon after she returned home, Shirley dropped out of school. She began working at a dress shop where, at age 15, she met a 22-year-old Air Force mechanic named Des Finn. To Shirley, English-born Des was a dashing young hero from a storybook, complete with a romantic accent. To Shirley's parents, he was trouble, yet another boy much too old for her. Her father forbade her from leaving the house again. But simple rules couldn't keep the two apart. Shirley would sneak out her window to see her older boyfriend. When the Australian Air Force stationed Des in Melbourne, on the other side of the country, he went AWOL and hitchhiked back to Perth to see Shirley. For the next three years, Shirley's parents and even the Child Welfare Department fought to keep Des away from her. The same magistrate who sent Shirley to the laundries ordered Des to stay away lest he be arrested. But the couple wouldn't let the threat of jail stop them. In November 1958, 
Des Finn married Shirley Shoering. He was 23 and she just 17. Though they were in love, things were difficult. They were cut off from family entirely. Shirley's parents refused to speak to her, and Des's family lived in England. Still, they tried to establish a stable, middle-class household. They had three children in three years, Stephen, Shane, and Bridget. But tragedy struck in 1962. While working on an aircraft, Des had a terrible accident. When the stitches healed and the blood had been washed away, he was left partially castrated. Des sunk into a deep depression, becoming moody and quick to anger. He wasn't able to work and often lashed out at his young children. He often took his frustrations out on Shirley, and they fought often. He even verbally and emotionally abused her. He eventually checked himself into the Heathcote Mental Hospital to recover, leaving 22-year-old Shirley alone to raise their three kids. She had no family, no support, and no way to make ends meet. However, when Shirley walked into a nightclub called the Oasis, she found the answer to her prayers. Hey, you look a little lost. I'm Marie. Did you want to order something? Shirley, and thank you. I was just hoping to find the manager. Tell me, are they hiring other waitresses here? I'm looking for a job. Oh, sure they are. But if you want the real money, that's up there on stage. The go-go dancers make it hand over fist. Oh, I don't know. I'm not much of a dancer. (laughs) Are you kidding? Look at you. Hot, young, legs to die for. Put you in boots and a miniskirt, and they'll be eating out of your hand. Really? Really? Look, come with me. The owner is going to love you. Every night, Shirley escaped the thankless, lonely rut of young motherhood for the raucous nightlife of the Oasis. While in the club, she was a glittering star, the center of attention. She felt sexy, she felt adored, and she was raking in money. Shirley became fast friends with a co-worker who we'll call Marie, a waitress-turned-topless dancer who performed the floor show at the Oasis. Together the two women started expanding their business. When a photographer approached the two friends to do a nude photo shoot, Shirley negotiated their rates. She and Marie started inviting onlookers to paint their skin as they danced, setting off a body painting craze that swept through dance halls and nightclubs. The money was good, and Shirley was having the time of her life. But problems persisted at home. Des fell into a depression and once again was in and out of a mental health facility. Both he and Shirley accused each other of domestic violence. Shirley struggled with her children. More than once, she even transferred custody of her kids to the state. But even the turbulence of their relationship was no match for Shirley's business sense. In 1969, 27-year-old Shirley opened Regency Escorts with her husband Des. According to them, it was a body-painting business, operating at the fringes of the law, but still within it. The Perth Vice Squad, however, didn't agree. In March 1969, detectives raided the building, and Shirley was charged with keeping premises for the purpose of sex work. The charge spelled the end of the middle-class facade that Shirley and Des had kept up for years. 
When it landed in the papers, their friends cut ties with them. The Catholic school their three children attended asked the family to disenroll. Nobody wanted anything to do with the shameful Finns. Save for one surprising party, Detective Bernie Johnson. You, haven't you caused me enough trouble? Haven't you already ruined my life? (laughs) Far from it, Shirley. I've been asking around about you. Word is you run a clean business, aren't entangled with any seedy characters, mafiosos, or the like. That true? It is, though I'm not sure why you'd believe me. According to you vice types, I'm just a criminal after all. So hostile. Surely, I'm coming to you as a friend, if you'll have me. I have a proposition for you. We're recruiting nice, clean girls like you. We? Who's we? Myself and some friends. Powerful ones. Would Ray O'Connor be one of those friends? Let's say, yes, the police minister would be involved. You bring in a few girls to provide company to men across Perth. No underhanded stuff. No competition in your district. And all under the protection of the vice squad. What do you say? By the time Detective Johnson left the house, Dez had just arrived home. And he was furious. They just barely escaped serious charges, and now she was talking to cops. But Shirley reassured her husband that everything was sorted. She'd gotten approval from the head of the Perth Vice Squad to open a brothel. Next, we'll cover Shirley's descent into the criminal underworld. What could be more shocking than uncovering the deep, dark secrets behind history's biggest stories? Realizing that everything you thought was true was a lie. Hi, it's Carter from the ParCast series, Conspiracy Theories. Every Monday and Wednesday, take a closer look at the blurred line between fact and fiction and discover that there may be more to the so-called truth than you think. From the government's link to Bigfoot and the otherworldly secrets of the Vatican, to the Grateful Dead's role in the spread of LSD, and more. On Conspiracy Theories, we leave no stone unturned and no skeptic unheard. Some may just be outlandish claims. Others may make you rethink everything. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Conspiracy Theories. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In 1969, Perth Vice Squad Chief Bernie Johnson offered to let Shirley Finn run a police-protected brothel in Perth. Shirley would soon find out she wasn't the only one. Perth was in the midst of a mining boom, 
which brought young male workers from across the country to strike it rich in the gold mines. With so many young men in the city, the demand for sex workers was high. Bernie Johnson and other high-level police captains saw a unique opportunity. They'd seen a similar rise in sex work in Sydney and had watched as it slowly became the mafia's game. By the 1960s, almost every brothel in Sydney had ties to organized crime. While sex work was somewhat tolerated, its mob ties often led to other violent crimes, human trafficking, intimidation rackets, theft, even murder. The vice squad wanted none of that in Perth, but they knew if they cracked down on sex work, it would only push the workers underground, where the mafia would happily set up shop. So they decided to do something different. They called the policy containment. It was top-level secret. You wouldn't find it written down on any file. After all, sex work was still technically against the law. But under containment, Bernie Johnson set up three madams. Dory Flatman, Stella Strong, and Shirley Finn. These three women ran sex work in Perth as a collective. They didn't treat each other as competition and all managed their own districts. But the peace came at a price. Do we really have to meet like this? In the car in a back alley? Did anyone follow you? I thought you said if the police were in charge, we wouldn't have any trouble. Doesn't mean we need to be sloppy. Did you bring the money? Here, all I've got left. Beautiful. We'll set you up in a nice place on Aberdeen Street. Dory Flatman will help get you started. Once doors are open, then we'll start regular payments. Regular payments? $100 a week. What? Per girl. Or you could try opening a place without us. See how far that gets you. <sighs> Fine. Glad to hear it. I'll be seeing you soon. In 1970, Shirley began working with Dory in the sex trade. And as their operation grew, she blossomed into a glamorous society figure. Her business brought in armloads of cash, despite the protection money she paid each week to the Perth police. Not that that entirely saved her from hassle. The vice squad needed to look like they were still prosecuting sex work, so they raided Shirley, Stella, and Dory's establishments many times. However, they'd let them know about the sweeps in advance and let the working girls take turns catching the charges. Though things were looking up in the business, at home, even the new money coming in wasn't helping Shirley and Dez fix their relationship. It came to a head in the spring of 1970. That spring, a Dutch diplomat named Thomas Dirksen had his holiday interrupted when on a drive out to the country, he encountered a naked woman flagging down his car. It was Shirley Finn, and she was livid. Stop! Please, stop! Oh, my... Miss? Are you all right? That creep! Please, you must help me. I'm gonna miss my flight. What happened? That idiot tied me to a tree. Look at my wrists. Here. You can see the rope marks. He tied me up there and waved his rifle around all night. Oh, my goodness. 
This man, did he hurt you? Who was he? I'm ending it for good. All because I didn't want to take him to Singapore with me. Please, take me to the police station. I need to call Bernie Johnson. At the time, Shirley refused to tell Thomas Dirksen, or anyone for that matter, who had tied her up. But according to later statements, it was her husband, Des. As Shirley's partnership with Dory grew more successful, Des became angrier. Shirley had been going back and forth to Singapore and Hong Kong without him. While it's not entirely clear why, some thought that she was laundering money for Perth's elite. This was the last straw. Shirley divorced Des in 1970, and he returned to England with their three children. Shirley continued to support them as she expanded her business. In 1971, Shirley had her first solo brothel up and running. By the time she turned 30 that same year, she had bought a nightclub and dubbed it the Striparama. It was a strip club in a converted church with a private back area that her girls could use for sex work. She also bought an apartment complex in Perth and finally her crowning jewel, a massive house in South Perth. The house was Shirley's pride and joy. She oversaw its renovation and lovingly chose every detail. There were beautiful garden statues and golden taps in the shape of swans. She even had solid gold tiles installed in the bottom of the pool, spelling out SS for Shirley Shoe Ring, her maiden name. Around 1972, Des moved back to Australia and Shirley invited her children to live with her. She continued to employ her ex-husband as a carpenter and handyman, but there's no evidence they ever became romantically involved again. Instead, over the next few years, Shirley had several short relationships. There was even a rumor she dated Ray O'Connor, the Perth Minister for Police. In 1973, Shirley left all of her boyfriends behind when she met a 24-year-old sex worker named Rose Black. Rose had grown up in Melbourne, having to fend for herself from a young age. When Shirley brought her to Perth to work in a brothel, Rose had nowhere to live, so she moved into Shirley's place, crashing on her couch. The relationship soon turned romantic, much to the ire of Shirley's children. According to the book Dirty Girl by Juliet Wills, Shirley's daughter Bridget, who was 13 at the time, despised Rose. She reported hearing Rose and her mother fight often, usually about Rose's failed attempts to get free from drug use. Rose also rubbed Shirley's friends the wrong way. Dory Flatman, one of the three state-sanctioned madams, would later claim her relationship with Shirley was never the same after she got involved with Rose. Still, Shirley was enjoying her success, and with the support of the Vice Squad, she had no shortage of friends. People depended on her for a good time. In 1974, when Elton John's world tour took him to Perth, the after-party was at Shirley's mansion, and the same feeling of trust and goodwill permeated her business relationships. Around this time, Shirley began holding and investing large sums of money, always in cash, and always, she insisted, as a favor for a friend. While it was never fully investigated, it seemed pretty clear that Shirley was helping her friends launder money or hide it from the Australian Taxation Office. And sometime between 1973 and 1974, 
the tax man came sniffing around. Shirley's lawyer had to break the news to her. This account, Hong Kong Syndicate Trust, where did this money come from? Ron, I've told you, it's money I put into savings for a friend. I'm not buying it, Shirley, and the taxation office isn't either. I just got off the phone with an agent who's very interested in how $70,000 got into that account. They're auditing everything, sniffing around for more money. They think you're hiding taxable income from them. It's not my money. Then tell them whose it is, Shirley. I can't do that. My entire business is about discretion. If people think I can't keep my mouth shut, I'll never earn a dollar again. If you don't produce an explanation for those accounts, they'll go after everything. The club, the brothels, the apartment block, your house, Shirley. It's either talk or walk. Shirley was staring down a tax bill of over $150,000. For context, around the same time, the median price of a house in Perth was around $17,500. For the same price, Shirley could buy eight houses, practically a neighborhood. If she didn't get help soon, it would ruin her. With her back against the wall, Shirley felt forced to do something drastic and ultimately deadly. Coming up, Shirley gets desperate. Now back to the story. By 1974, Shirley's glamorous house of cards was beginning to collapse. For nearly four years, she'd had a booming sex work business in Perth. Thanks to her high-level connections, generous kickbacks, and supposed willingness to launder money. But the tax office had caught on, and now Shirley was on the chopping block. It's not entirely clear what happened, but it appeared that Shirley was running into cash flow problems. A politician friend offered to help if she could come up with $5,000. Whether or not it was a bribe to a tax officer, she didn't know. But it was her only option. Now she just needed some help to get her by. In August 1974, Shirley was now 33. She turned to the last person she ever thought she'd speak to again, her father. She called him and invited him to her home. I won't lie. It's a gorgeous place, Shirley. You know, I picked everything out myself. The chandeliers, the antiques, even expanded the top floor. Well... You didn't just bring me here to show me your home. What's the problem? I need money. I haven't asked you for anything since I was a kid, but I'm asking you now. I need $5,000, and I need it really quickly. Why? What are you into? What's it for? I can't really say much, but let's just say the taxation office thinks I owe them a bunch of money. Not to worry, it's gonna get cleared up. What, uh, what do you mean cleared up? This is serious, Shirley. You, you could go to jail. I have a friend, a politician, an MP. I'm flying to Canberra with him shortly and he will square this taxation away. Any names? <laughs> oh no, we don't deal in names. I, I, I don't understand. This MP, he's doing something shady for you? And why do you need my $5,000? You, you've got plenty of stuff around here you could sell. I can't really explain. I, I need the money quick. 
and I can't really afford to have someone see me and start thinking I'm low on cash. If you help me, Dad, you'll have your money back in no time with oodles of interest. What do you say? Help your daughter out? In the end, Shirley's father agreed. He'd had an acquaintance loan Shirley the $5,000, which she gave to her politician friend. True to her word, the money was repaid with interest in just a few days. Whatever the friend used the money for, it wasn't enough. The taxation office still believed Shirley had been hiding income. She would have to pay the $150,000 tax bill or risk jail. Up until this point, Shirley had been the picture of discretion. Near the end of 1974, it seemed like Shirley was thinking about breaking that confidentiality for the first time. While we can't confirm this fact, most researchers think that Shirley had been laundering money for someone since at least 1970, when she started traveling to Hong Kong. It seems likely that this person, or persons, ran in the same seedy crowds that she did. It might have been a corrupt cop, or even a politician on the sex worker's take. Both would have done anything to keep their illegal dealing secret. So if Shirley outed them to the taxation office, that could spell trouble. With the tax man breathing down her neck, Shirley faced an impossible choice. Go to jail or rat out Perth's criminal underworld. Some believe that, fearing what she might say, Shirley's former friends began a calculated campaign of intimidation. In September 1974, Shirley's nightclub Striparama burned to the ground. It wasn't clear what caused the blaze. Just a few months later, in January 1975, an explosion shook Shirley's brothel at 454 William Street. Someone had placed an explosive in the back of a gun shop that shared a wall with Shirley's establishment. No one was hurt, but the message was received loud and clear. Shirley was being targeted. At least it appeared that way. Years later, Des Finn would claim that Shirley asked him to firebomb the brothel and he refused. According to him, Shirley claimed it was for insurance money, but the payout wouldn't be for her. It's not clear whether it would have gone towards her tax bill or to pay off one of her powerful friends for their help. Whatever the reason for the firebomb, Shirley was growing desperate. Her final face-off with the taxation department was looming, her hearing was scheduled for June 24, 1975. Shirley didn't have the money. It seemed like her powerful friends had abandoned her. So in the days before the hearing, she considered using the only other tool she had at her disposal. Shirley met up with a senior police chief named Owen Leach, who was acting police commissioner of Western Australia. He knew all about the vice squad's dirty dealings in Perth, when Shirley talked about coming clean, he allegedly threatened her, implying that if she spoke, she could be shot. Shirley felt terrified, and on June 20th, 1975, she turned to a bookie named Don Mack. Don's wife, Jacqueline, overheard their conversation and years later relayed it to the press. Shirley, what are you doing here? I have to talk to you. It's serious. This time, I'm gone. Don't be such a drama queen. I'm serious. 
I told Owen Leach I am meeting with the tax office soon. I won't muck around. I will give all the names. He said, watch your mouth or bang. Just like that. The end. What are you going to do? I'm done, Don. I have this dinner on Sunday with a guy. He's gonna help me with Leech, the police, the whole tax problem. What? Who is this guy? Surely, I don't know if you should go against the police. I can't tell you who he is, but don't worry about me. I told Leech if I go down, so will he. Apparently, Shirley had been prepared to hand over at least some of her underworld contacts to the tax office. And after she told Owen Leach about this plan, some powerful individual came into her orbit and said they could save her. It's not clear who this person was, or if Shirley even knew their name. And it's certainly possible that they didn't actually have Shirley's best interests at heart. But the situation made her desperate. She'd trust anyone who said they could help. She planned to meet with this person on June 22nd, just two days before her tax hearing on June 24th. It seems like she thought this mysterious helper could get her out of the tax issues she was facing. But it's not clear how exactly she thought this would happen. She might have been prepared to rat out her accomplices, or she might have been ready to disappear from public life and assume a new identity. Whatever the plot was, she told her lawyer, her daughter Bridget, and her lover Rose that this meeting would be the answer to all her problems. What Shirley didn't know was that it would be the last one she'd ever attend. Shirley spent Sunday morning, June 22nd, 1975, running errands with Rose, picking up gardening supplies, and talking to Dez. That afternoon, Shirley, Rose, and Shirley's daughter Bridget had a barbecue and ate dinner by the pool. As the evening progressed, however, Shirley began to act strangely. She called a babysitting service at 5 p.m., but the company had no one available for the night. Shirley had never left Bridget alone without supervision before, but that night, she didn't try to secure another sitter. There, perfect, and right on time, too. Bridget, Bridget, sweetie, I think you should call it an early night tonight. You don't want to be tired for school tomorrow. Come on, upstairs. I'll be in to say goodnight in a minute. Rose, darling, I need to ask a favor. I need the house tonight. I've got a business meeting. You should go to Luis's. I can pick you up when I'm done. Later, Rose recalled that Shirley had never, in two years of dating, asked her to leave the house for a meeting. Rose knew that her girlfriend was meeting up with a mysterious figure that night and that her meeting with the tax office was coming up in two days. But Shirley had never been this antsy. Rose was so rattled by Shirley's behavior, she even offered to hide in the trunk of her car. But Shirley told her it was impossible. The trunk was full of two giant garbage bags full of money, a bribe for the meeting. Around 7.50 p.m., Rose left in a taxi and arrived at a friend's house around a half hour later. She called Shirley around 9.40. Rose! No, he hasn't gotten here yet. I need you to stay away. I'm expecting him to knock any minute. A few minutes later, a young neighbor spotted Shirley leaving her house on Riverview Street. 
She remembered being dazzled by Shirley in her long, cinnamon-colored ball gown, dripping with golden jewelry. Shirley got into her car, a beautiful white Dodge Phoenix. She normally hated driving at night, but her destination was close. Shirley was headed barely half a mile down the road to the Royal Perth Golf Club. She zoomed off into the night, spirits high, as she headed to the meeting she thought would save her. Around 8.30 the next morning, police constable Jeff McMurray was riding through his rounds on a motorcycle. He noticed a car abandoned at the Royal Perth Golf Club. The white car was pulled over next to the 7th fairway. The driver's side door was wide open. When Constable McMurray approached, he found a grisly sight. A woman in a crumpled ball gown was slumped over in the driver's seat. Blood was matting her hair. Just two days before she planned to meet with the tax office and reveal the corruption running rampant through Perth, someone shot Shirley Finn in the head four times. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of Shirley Finn. For more information on Shirley Finn, amongst the many sources we used, we found Dirty Girl by Juliet Wills extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Molly Quinlan, with writing assistance by Kylie Harrington and Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Tiana Camacho, Joe Hernandez, and Rebecca Thomas. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy.